Hey there, this is Sean McMahon. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast and thanks for supporting the ministry by lending your ears, your minds, hearts, all that good stuff. Don't be afraid to share this here message with a friend or a family member, even a stranger. Have at. It's not like it's going to bite. These messages are recorded live at the Community Baptist Church of Gayhead and Aquino on Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, and the good old U.S. of A. If you're ever in town for a visit or suddenly find yourself shipwrecked on the southwest side of our lovely little island, climb up the clay cliffs and come on down to our little old chapel for our weekly 10 a.m. service. No need to wear anything special, just bring your special self. May God bless you. A reading from the Contagion of the Hieromiter Cornelius from the Eastern Church. The Church hath received you as the holy firstfruits of the nations, for you illuminate her with your great deeds of godly virtues, O hallowed and sacred convert, most godly Cornelius. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 10, verses 1 through 8. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was called the Italian Regiment. He and all his household were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to the people and prayed to God regularly. One day at about the ninth hour, he had a clear vision of an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear and asked, What is it, Lord? The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to call for a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among his attendants. He explained what had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. The Word of the Lord. This past weekend, the church commemorated St. Cornelius the Centurion, the first Gentile convert to the Christian faith. He and his entire household were baptized by the hand of St. Peter, whom God instructed in a vision to preach to the Gentiles. And when this happened, this was the moment when non-Jews entered the kingdom of God for the first time. This changed the course of history. Christ had told his apostles at first, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10, 5-6 But as they went from city to city, he warned that if the people did not repent, then he would say to them, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourselves thrown out. Then, he said, people will come from east and west, from north and south, that is, Gentiles from all over the world, he's saying, and they will eat in the kingdom of God. Luke thirteen twenty-seven through 29. And this is precisely how it happened. As St. Paul taught, God's temporary rejection of the Jews of that generation is what opened the floodgates of the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. But God had another purpose in this, to save Israel through jealousy. He said, because of Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles 
to make Israel jealous, Romans 11.11. And by this, all the faithful remnant of Israel would be saved, along with those Gentiles who made them jealous. All the branches together, joined to their holy root. God is good. And so Cornelius, the first of all Gentile Christians, was the first who could say, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in, Romans eleven nineteen. And from his conversion on, many more Gentiles were grafted into the church, which meant they became full citizens of the commonwealth of Israel in Christ Jesus. Just as in the days of King David, those who gathered around him and not King Saul were in the kingdom of God, so those who gathered around Jesus the Messiah and not King Herod were citizens in the kingdom of God. And not just citizens only, but some Gentiles would even become Levites, that is, priests. Levites, you might ask. But Levites are an ancestral lineage. You have to be born into the tribe of Levi to be a Levite priest, right? Well, God foretold through Isaiah that he would indeed gather from among the Gentile nations brothers for the faithful of Israel, and that he would even make some of these Gentile brothers priests and Levites. That's from Isaiah 66, 17 and following. Well, first we should ask, how does a Gentile become an Israelite, let alone a Levite? The same way you must enter the kingdom of God, because that's the same thing as becoming an Israelite under the new covenant. You must be born again, as Jesus taught, of water and the Spirit, John chapter 3. And this is precisely what God worked through his Christian apostles, who went out to the Gentiles to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, into the commonwealth of Israel, under the lordship of Jesus. And the most famous of the apostles to the Gentiles, of course, was St. Paul. Now, here's a question. If the vision to evangelize the Gentiles came to Peter in Acts 10, why is it that Paul said Peter is the apostle to the circumcised, to the Jews, and not the Gentiles, while Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles? And while we're at it, didn't God strike Saul blind on the road to Damascus and give him his calling to the Gentiles in Acts 9 before Peter had his vision in Acts 10? And yet, Peter claimed in Acts 15 that he was the first to preach to the Gentiles. God made a choice among you that the Gentiles would hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. That's what he says in Acts 15, 7. Were the biblical writers confused because they were just making it all up, as many contemporary critics of Christianity say? No way! The answers are in plain sight, spread out between Acts and Galatians, actually. In Galatians 1, we learn that after Paul's road to Damascus conversion and the revelation that he would be God's chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and their king, Acts 9.15, he says he didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. Okay, let's look at that for a second. I've heard a few preachers say that this meant he didn't consult with the apostles and he just started preaching willy-nilly to the Gentiles. But that couldn't be what Paul meant because he also says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to the apostles who came before me. So the apostles are clearly a separate category from flesh and blood. No, with Paul, flesh and blood means the desires of his flesh. Just as when he said, 
flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? He didn't mean then that there wouldn't be a resurrection of the body, since he clearly teaches the resurrection of a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15. So with Paul, the word body and the word flesh, they're actually not synonyms. And scholars have talked about this for various reasons, because it pertains to the Apostles' Creed, which says resurrection of the flesh. But what they mean is a glorified flesh, which they mean to be a synonym with Paul's spiritual body. There's a whole lot there that you can look into on your own time. Okay? But for Paul, the word body and the word flesh are not synonyms. So we know what he means by body. What does he mean by flesh or flesh and blood in this passage? Well, he means what he always means. Again, the desires of the flesh. Okay? So when Paul says he didn't consult with flesh and blood, he's saying he didn't give in to the temptation to just start running around preaching to the Gentiles immediately. Because remember, according to the Old Covenant, it was illegal for Jews to step foot in a Gentile home and eat with them. Certain types of fellowship were just off limits, okay? So in Acts 9, when it says that Paul immediately begins proclaiming Jesus, you'll notice that he actually didn't go among the Gentiles, but he did his teaching in the Jewish synagogues. You'll see that in Acts 9, when he's preaching in Damascus and Jerusalem, in Acts 11, when he's preaching in Tarsus and Antioch, and back to Jerusalem in Acts 12. And by the way, depending on the translation of the Bible you're using, you might read that it says he's preaching to Greeks. He's actually preaching to Greek Jews. Hellenists is who he's preaching to. So he's preaching to Jews in synagogues. So Paul remained obedient to the law. And more importantly, actually, he was obedient to the church leadership in this manner. He doesn't jump the gun after this revelation. Rather, he waited three whole years before he went to Jerusalem to confer with Cephas, or Peter. He tells us this in Galatians 1.18. The way Acts 9 tells it is that Barnabas escorts him there, but because of his former life as a Christian hunter, the disciples are too scared to see him. Only Peter and James, the leader of the entire church and the leader of the Jerusalem church, respectively. Only they received him, according to Paul in Galatians 1. But he didn't stay too long since his preaching to, again, not Greeks purely, but to Hellenist Jews in Jerusalem incites the people against him to kill him. So the apostles send him off to Tarsus. Well, guess what? He still doesn't preach to Gentiles. Why not? Because the church hadn't authorized him to yet. Here's how this authorization happened. After Paul is sent to Tarsus in Acts 9, then Peter receives his vision in Acts 10, and then the ministry to the Gentiles opens up. Jerusalem hears that this ministry is going well in Antioch, so they send Barnabas there. And Barnabas gets Paul from Tarsus and brings him with him, and they minister there for a year, it says. And here's where it gets interesting. In Acts 12, King Herod begins to persecute the church. Peter is arrested, but an angel frees him, and he runs off as a fugitive to another place. That's what the Bible says, another place. Well, which place? Well, Scripture never talks about Peter's location, because if you think about it, at the time that the Acts and the Epistles were written, he's still a fugitive. They didn't want to give his location away, right? But after Peter's death, his disciples shared where he'd been. And as it turns out, after he was busted out of prison, he was most likely in Antioch. That's why he's called the first bishop of Antioch, by the way. Now check this out. Acts 13 opens. 
Now in the church at Antioch, again at that time, Acts 13, in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay? This is an important clue because it tells us that in authority at the Antiochian church at that time, there are only two of the fivefold ministries of Ephesians 4.11, which meant they were lacking the other three. Apostles, evangelists, and pastors. Now, apostles, that's important, right? Because we're talking about St. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. But what this tells us is that Saul was not yet ordained an apostle at this point, nor even an evangelist. He's listed among the numbers of prophets and teachers. Okay, so that was his office at that time. That's what he was authorized to do in the church. Okay, and a careful reading will note up to this point, again, that Saul was only proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, meaning he was teaching. He was teaching Torah. He was teaching Messiah, Jesus Christ, for battle of the Torah. He was teaching in the synagogues, because that's what you do in the synagogues. Well, what happens next is, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. And by the way, this is one of the last times you're going to see Barnabas listed before Saul. Okay? And that's because of what happens after this. But set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And after they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Acts 13, 1-3. They laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they were ordained, and it's my speculation, I can't prove this, I don't know how many people have talked about this idea, I'm in the process of researching it, but it's my speculation that likely that ordination was at the hands of Peter, because I don't see any precedent for ordination by the lay people. It seems that an elder has to lay the hands on someone that they're ordaining in the Bible, and it says at the beginning of Acts 13, well, there's only prophets and teachers. There's no apostles, okay? So if prophets uh, were able to ordain, maybe that's what was going on. I haven't confirmed that yet. But again, we have good reason to believe that Peter was in Antioch at this time, that he had fled there after being broken out of prison by the angel. So this might be a hush-hush way of saying that Paul was ordained by Peter. At any rate, from then on, Barnabas and Saul were on mission. They were ordained. They were apostles. Apostles at last. If anyone's ever seen Jesus Christ Superstar, they're saying, Always hoped that I'd be an apostle. Knew that I would make it if I tried. Well, Paul finally made it, and so did Barnabas. So again, from that time on, they're on mission. We're going to jump back to the Galatians narrative because Paul tells us that he's on mission for 14 years from this point. And during that 14 years, Paul ordains Titus, who is a Roman, to the apostolic ministry. St. Titus, Bishop of Crete, that's how we know him. That's how we know him in history. And this, so far as we know, is the first example in history of the fulfillment of Isaiah 66, a Gentile became a Levite priest. Ah, remember that? We mentioned that earlier. So, going back, in order to become an Israelite in the New Covenant, you have to be born again of water and spirit. Okay? But in order to become a Levite, you must be ordained. Now, 
How do we surmise that the apostles and their successors are Levites? What's the justification for that concept? Well, it's, it's typological. This brings us back to the first chapter of Isaiah, verse 26. God promises to Zion, quote, I will restore your judges as at first, and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, end quote. Note how it says that the manner of the restoration of the judges will be as at the first, that is, at the origin of the judges. So we find that origin story in Numbers 11. Moses brings 70 elders before the tent, and God anoints them with the Holy Spirit. And these are the first judges. But note, these judges are from every tribe, so they're not Levites, because Levites are just from one tribe, right? In fact, they are subject to the Levites, because... If they sin and they need to make an offering, well, who they got to give it to? They got to give it to the Levitical priests. So they're at the whim of the Levitical priests, so to speak. If they say no, you've got problems. And the Levites are, of course, they're actually servants of the people. But again, in God's kingdom, it's the servants who are the leaders, okay? So anyway, all these judges, they're subject to the Levites is the point. Well, similarly... Okay, remember, this is a typological relationship. So similarly, in Luke 10, Jesus sends the Spirit out on 70 of his disciples. Remember, 70, 70 elders. And this was Christ putting Isaiah 1.26 in fulfillment. He was restoring the judges of Israel, which the Sanhedrin would not be happy about since they considered themselves the judges of Israel, but they are corrupt, hence the restoration being necessary. Now, to whom are these 70 the 70 of Christ, to whom are they subject, as the 70 of Moses were at first subject to the Levites? Well, they're subject to the apostles. Acts 2.42 illustrates this. If you were to ask what Christ's disciples, what the disciples did in the early church, here's the answer. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Okay? So, the 70 of Christ are subject to the apostles, just as the 70 of Moses are subject to the Levites. Do you see the parallel here? Do you see the typology? And by this typology, we can see that in the hierarchy of the fivefold ministry is the fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 1 that the judges, or the Sanhedrin, which had become corrupt in the latter days of the Old Covenant, which finally even condemned Christ to death, well, it would one day become restored, and it was restored in the fivefold ministry in the disciples and and then you can better see fulfillment of isaiah 66 and how gentiles became levitical priests right they were ordained to the apostolic ministry okay and that's why from old the ministry which was passed down from the apostles through the laying on of hands in ordination is called priesthood our Christian priests, our pastors, are, they're carrying on the work of the New Covenant Levites, the, the apostles themselves. And to this day, the disciples of Jesus still do what they did in Acts 2.42. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, which we hear through the pastor, through the priest, who ideally is ordained by someone who is ordained by someone who is ordained by someone who is ordained by someone ordained by one of the twelve apostles, who were in turn ordained by Jesus Christ himself. Okay, and by the way, I'm not including Judas, I'm, I'm including Matthias, his replacement, right? Because these were offices. 
that were invested with power and authority by Jesus Christ. It wasn't just the people, it was the office, and it was meant to be passed down. Okay, so again, the disciples devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, this breaking of bread refers to the thanksgiving sacrifice at the heart of Christian worship, what the Greeks called Eucharist, and that means thanksgiving. Now, you may have done a double take when I called it the Thanksgiving sacrifice. Have you ever heard communion called a sacrifice? Well, here's why. While there's no need for the New Covenant Levites to offer any sacrifice for sins, as they did in the Old Covenant, because Christ died once for all, right? And he's the propitiation of not just our sins, but the world's sins. 1 John 2.2 2. There is a sacrifice which remains, though we might not think of it as a sacrifice. And this sacrifice is the sacrifice of giving thanks. And it's the only sacrifice that God wants. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice a thank offering to God and fulfill your vows to the Most High. He who sacrifices a thank offering honors me. And to him who writes his way, I will show the salvation of God. Psalm 50. Well, what is a thank offering? Check out Leviticus 7.13-5. through 5. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord, as a sacrifice to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings and the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. Okay? The sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving. And you heard all that, right? Bread, blood, flesh. Sound familiar? I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And this bread, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Bread, blood, flesh. John 6, this is the thanksgiving sacrifice. The bread of thanksgiving is the bread which Christ broke at the Last Supper. And his authority to institute such a sacrifice comes from God, who declared of him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, recall that Melchizedek in the book of Genesis who is so great, by the way, that Paul says that Levites paid tithes to him in the loins of Abraham in Hebrews 7.9. Well, Melchizedek worshipped with bread and wine. So this bread and wine, it's the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is truly God's will for us. Should you ever doubt, what's God's will for my life? What is God's will for me? Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice at all times, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in every circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in every circumstance. Well, maybe that explains why they were breaking that bread so much, right? Every day. Catholics, Orthodox, they offer the Mass every day. They're offering the Thanksgiving sacrifice every day. Because in First Thessalonians... 
it says that God's will for you in Christ Jesus is give thanks. And of course you can do that through prayer in practicing the presence of God, just saying, thank you, God. Thank you for everything. Thank you for your blessings. And thank you also for your blessings of hardship and trial. We're called to say thanks even in times of trial. Amen. That is God's will for us in Christ Jesus to give thanks. How blessed we are that our yoke is so light. And this is because with his great divine love, he's covered the multitude of our sins. And because he's forgiven our sins, he's not ashamed to give us his spirit. And so he sends it into our hearts crying, Abba, Papa, Daddy, Dad, Father. He lives in us, making us his dwelling. And this is what's going to bring us full circle. In making us his dwelling place, in making us his tabernacle, he fulfills another prophecy. Zechariah 14, 16 through 17. Then all the survivors from the Gentile nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of tabernacles. Tabernacles, which is what he made us when he sent his spirit into our hearts. But what this prophecy is saying is that Gentiles would serve the Lord. And not just this, but that he, God, will always dwell with us year after year, forever, right? You're going to go up to worship the king year after year in the spiritual tabernacle of his church with his holy people who are washed in the blood of the lamb, our king, whom we worship, going up to worship that king in the Feast of Tabernacles every year. And it says, And should any of the families of the earth not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, then the rain will not fall on them. Well, the rain, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And indeed, not everyone has the Holy Spirit, and not everyone is a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. But to those who do enter into the new Jerusalem of the church by faith, the Spirit is given, and the Spirit makes a dwelling place, makes a tabernacle in you. In you, regardless of whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, okay? And that is what Zechariah 14 is talking about. Well, this prophecy was finally and first fulfilled long ago with the entire household of faithful St. Cornelius the Centurion, who we're remembering today. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard his message. All the circumcised believers who had accompanied Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and exalting God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water to baptize these people? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. St. Cornelius the Centurion went on to be ordained Bishop of Caesarea, and he was martyred for his faith. Almighty God, our Sovereign Lord, who called Cornelius the Centurion to be the first Christian among the Gentiles, who healed the servant at Capernaum in accordance with the Centurion's great faith, and who inspired the Centurion at Calvary to glorify Jesus, strengthen us in our faith that we might follow their example to love, serve and glorify you as faithful members of the church militant through jesus christ our lord 
who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sean McMahon Podcast. Visit SeanSellickMcMahon.com for more information about his ministry. For more about Sean's music, please visit WorkmanSong.com.